If you're listening to the episodes in order, you should know that our dispatch from the Likely Land and Livestock Company has been replaced by a trip we made to Dorrance Ranch in Salinas, California. In fact, we're fortunate enough to return to Likely this month and are hoping to expand our already fascinating content, which should be released soon. I'm Ryan Donahue, and this is Stories from California Cattle Country. When we visited Dorrance, their family had a season to reflect on the river fire from the fall of 2020. They were lucky. I mean, sort of lucky. They didn't lose any animals or structures in the fire. What was made clear is their connection and commitment to that land and concern about the potential of future fires. This ranch, which is on 4,300 acres in the Sierra de Salinas mountain range, was placed in a conservation easement with the Nature Conservancy in 2008. Simply put, a conservation easement allows owners to establish a trust where they receive compensation for surrendering certain rights associated with land ownership, like splitting up land or other development like building homes or even things like mineral extraction. The agreement is in perpetuity, which is to say that the land managed by the trust will always fall under the agreement with the Nature Conservancy, even if it's sold to another party. We sat down and met the family to discuss the ranch's history, the river fire, and securing the future of Dorrance Ranch for the next generation. Molly Lambert, and I am a family member and a partner in the business. I'm Steve Dorrance. I'm a partner guess it'd be one of the seniors in Dorrance Ranches. Been here for about 65 years. I'm Leslie Dorrance. I'm married to Steve Dorrance, family member and support system for the rest of the family. Clifton Dorrance, a partner in Dorrance Ranches. I wonder if one of you kind of give me a brief history of the ranch. My great-grandfather acquired the ranch in 1945. He had a piece of farm ground across the Salinas Valley originally, and he traded for this ranch. They expanded the ranch in 1946 and acquired the piece of property over on the Carmel Valley side. He had a daughter, Marie, and she ended up marrying our grandfather, Bill. They raised my father and two uncles on this property, and my mom and dad raised my two brothers and I on this property. And we now have the third, fourth, and part of the fifth generation living on this property. Would the fifth be Levi? Yes. Levi is Sam and my son. Can you just give me a brief description of what we're looking at when you look out this window right here? Um, looking at the the Salinas Valley on a clear day, you can see out to Davenport on a clear day, you can see the Monterey Bay. You can see over to Carmel Valley and as far south as Gonzales. Probably Greenfield. And you can see Mount Whitney if it was ever clear enough across the San Joaquin. One thing I wanted to cover is the events surrounding the river fire in August, how it developed. Is there someone that would like to speak to that? It was probably, what, two, one o'clock, two in the morning when we, we had a lightning fire and woke up and we're looking out and I noticed that the neighbors was on fire. And so we called them to let them know and called 911. And so we were able to see this fire Develop from something that was quite small. It really didn't seem like it should have been very impactful. And we watched right up till about noon while they were sending crews up um, digging trails and trying to get things under control. And it pretty much looked like the fire was out. We decided to take a nap because we'd been up so much of the night. And I don't think we were asleep more than a half an hour when I woke up and looked out and the whole hill in what we call Pine Canyon, the neighbors, was ablaze. And the wind just started wreaking havoc.
havoc and it went every different direction. It was going up and down and it, it headed into more of our country, but it trapped some of the bulldozers where they were having trouble um, getting out of the flames. It became so intense. We went from being very low keyed to just panic. What do you take? You know, what do you grab? What do we do? Having cattle here, trying to figure out how we were going to save the cattle if it came up over the top. And uh, we had a lot of friends that came and helped, you know, moved livestock, moved our dogs and cats. And then it just carried on for days. I mean, it burned and burned. It carried on for months. We had fires breaking out months after they supposedly had it under control where trees would start burning again and just send up a lot of smoke. And it was impactful for all of us. Yeah, there were there were certain areas that they couldn't get down when they were trying to put their lines in. So they had to be strategic about where they were going to, to make sure they could make a continuous line. And the maps that they had, they were having a really hard time figuring out what ridges they could continue on. So we helped out with that as much as we could in the in a direction we thought they could make it anyways. You didn't lose any cattle during the fire? No, we had, there were some heifers that were in the field that the fire actually started. Sam and my dad got them moved kind of just as a precautionary deal early in the morning, even though it looked like everything was under control. And then most of the other major part of the herd um, was on the side that it wasn't burning, kind of on the back side of the ranch. And then we had 10 heifers down on the Carmel Valley side of the ranch that we thought they were probably in the safest spot they could be. They were as far from the fire as, you know, they could be. And I think it was the third day, either the second or third day, they, I mean, we thought they were just kind of mopping up. Uh, The wind picked up and um, sent the fire over the line. And then it became pretty clear that they were, those cattle that we thought were in the safest spot were in uh, definitely in the path of the fire. And not only that, they were planning to uh, backburn that whole area. So we made a a quick run down there uh, just before dark. And uh, I was videoing the whole thing. And it was pretty funny because there's one point in it that my dad says, I don't think we should show anyone this video. We're driving out and everything's on fire. And then we got a little farther and he said, I don't know if I do this different next time. (laughs) One kind of narrative that seems to be like a through line in in a lot of these conversations is how to keep a ranch alive in a multi-generational family. And there's the other thing that comes up a lot are ways to find funding to keep things going. The succession planning that was done in uh Probably around 1992 was huge. Um, our dad, after the our mom had died in 1980, uh, the day that she died, it looked like lost her. We were going to lose the ranch. Um, I was going to lose my job and home all in one one day. Our dad didn't want that to happen again if he could help it. So we did this succession planning in 1992, thanks to some of our training from the holistic management. They had a support system to do it. That helped us to start to think a little bit more about what our income sources were going to be. Our dad passed away in 99. We did succession planning again in 2017, starting to look at another generation And not so much another generation, but just how it was going to look going forward. Dad's vision, and he'd asked to see if I could figure out a way to do it a few years before he passed away, was he wanted a place here for our family to be able to gather for as long as our family wanted to gather. And he realized that sometimes families would get together and find out they didn't want to be together anymore. And he said that'd probably be a good time to get rid of the whole thing. And about all that we ever knew, um, my brothers and I was, uh, my brothers both farmed. 
well as ranched, and, and I just knew about cows and ranches. That's pretty much it, what we knew. So it's nice to have another generation that's interested in being here, figuring out what it can be in the future. Did a conservation easement in 2008 to help diversify our income sources, uh, get rid of some development rights that we had not figured on exercising. We didn't want to develop it. We didn't want to make it smaller. And the ranch, two ranches are tied together in one easement, so they can't even be split. Easements with the Nature Conservancy, and we've had good relationship with the Nature Conservancy. They've been good to deal with. They've been fairly understanding of the things that go on on ranches and kind of what needs to be done sometimes. And it's so far, at least it's been a very positive relationship. And we try and make sure anybody we talk to about uh, conservation easements knows that and been, you know, that the whole process has been positive. Is there like a kind of a stated, this easement is here to do what? Oh, good question. Is It really was designed to keep us here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For them, it was different. Yeah, there was, they found some species of concern here that they were real interested in. Begin with red-legged frog the tiger salamander, and we have badgers and, of course, deer, and burrowing owls, eagles. You probably as fascinating as anything was prior to this, looking at this easement, I didn't even know what was in our stock ponds. In fact, we'd put goldfish in them as entertainment, I guess. Maybe you have 100,000 goldfish in a stock pond. Finding out that we had other things in there. I had really hadn't thought about tiger salamanders, didn't know about red-legged frogs, back swimmers, uh, clam shrimp. When it came down to butterflies, there was a guy came by and I think he identified, I don't know, maybe a dozen different species of butterflies. And of course, monarchs were always real prominent, knew them as a kid, but I had no idea how many butterflies we have. And then there was another fella, he spent time looking at birds, and then wildflowers. And there's quite a bit out on these ranches that it makes it a little bit more interesting. I think that it's uh, just a different mentality. I mean, every time we found something new, there was a sense of pride that we had that here on the ranch. So instead of hiding those things or saying, we don't want to tell anybody about it because something's going to happen... We've been supporting, you know, like the tiger salamander workshops. We have them come here. Our grandkids are knee deep in the water and using their, they get to go out there and watch them net and find the tiger salamanders. And it's been really fun for the kids. Every time we see a burrowing owl or something that uh, adds to our collection of what we're doing here, it just gives us uh, an opportunity to see that we're doing the right things, you know, that things are going in a good direction. And um, I think that's hard sometimes. People want to protect their property and they're afraid something's going to happen if people find out they have endangered species. Most of these ranchers are doing something right because a lot of them do have an endangered species on their land. From the cattle grazing and the different things that we do, they're there. You'll hear in this clip that the ranch took issue with not being able to shoot squirrels. It's important to know that the issues with urban squirrels and the ground squirrels at Dorrance are quite different. These burrowing ground squirrels are absolutely everywhere on the ranch and need to be controlled. Pretty sure they're what inspired the arcade game Whack-A-Mole. In this clip, we hear partner in the ranch, Dave Dorrance, explain the strange symbiosis between ground squirrels and tiger salamanders. Apologies for the audio as Dave wasn't mic'd and was a ways from the microphone. For the Nation Conservancy, there was one meeting where they were trying to say 
if we could shoot squirrels. And for me, that was like deal breaker. But they just wanted to be able, if they ever got down to a certain population, they would, they wanted to have. But it wasn't until Nation Service he sent out the, to do the survey and they had these guys, this is their, their life. This is just what they study. This guy, he was so excited. He goes, I've been doing this now for the last 60, you know, 60, 80 days. This is the most productive pond for the tiger salmon. And he was, and I go, yeah, but what's, there's something about squirrels and tiger salamanders. And then he goes, oh, well, at some, at some point, this pond, it doesn't hold water year round. Yeah, that's correct. But he goes, when this pond dries up, now these salamanders, they've developed, they got their legs. And but they need to go. They have to have a place to go. The squirrel holes that are around this pond, that's the next step for them for survival. And that was why the nation they didn't share that in that in that meeting. Then I had no problem. I said, I hope someday I would, they would be able to tell me, well, now there's only, you know, 50 squirrels on this whole ranch and that, you know, you can't shoot anymore. Man, that would make my day. They'd never seen a shoot before. They wouldn't have had any concern about the squirrel population getting more support, supporting the ammo industry, I think. Yeah. Right. But that was the education part of this, doing the easement, at least for me. I think it was the education. It connected me to species that I just took for granted or, you know, they'll just be here or whatever. Oh, I was just going to say, we get that a lot. Like if we have a workshop or a group come up and they want to know, you know, what's it going to be like in the future if there's something that you want to do that you can't do because of the easement. And I always say, well, we have to think about it as we might not still be on this ranch if the easement hadn't been done. So that's what's important to us. And we'll work around all this other, and really a lot of the things that we shouldn't, we can't do in the easement are things we shouldn't be doing anyways. It all kind of works out. Where do you see Levi in 20 years? You know, I don't ever want to put any pressure on him to be here, but I definitely hope that I give him the foundation that our parents gave us to love this piece of property, whether he's working here or whether he just comes here to enjoy it. Um, seeing Levi out on the land, you know, with his cousins really reminds me of how it was growing up with my brothers. So I, I don't know where he will be in 20 years, but I believe that he's already gotten a very strong foundation on like loving this place. And it's not just because what I'm doing or his dad does a great job, but his grandparents and his aunt and uncle and his cousins and his great uncle, it's just taken an entire village already. And he's only 16 months old, but I hope no matter where he is, that he loves this place as much as I do. He seems to kind of run the place. Yeah, Yeah, he he does. does. He for sure does. And you can never, I mean, just from experience, and I think Molly and and our older brother Drew and and everybody that's spent much time here can attest to, like, if you spent any amount of time here, like, it's always a part of you. And you can can leave, you can go do other stuff, but you're going to have some day where you're like, what the hell am I doing? Like, that's where I want to be. On the day of our visit, California State Senator John Laird took a tour of the ranch in an effort to better understand issues facing California ranches. This is a clip of Steve Dorn speaking to Senator Laird. I'll tell you what this easement did, and I don't know where Molly is. Oh, Molly's down there. It allowed for a paying job for Molly and a paying job for Cliff. 
and that's what it did, and it allowed for Dave and Mai's retirement, you know, when we get there. That's what it's allowed for. Are, you, allowed us to are buy, you flunking retirement? I don't, you know, I don't know. And I don't know whether you know about this on, and this is definitely a, uh, oh, no, I can a count, rabbit a I rabbit can hole counsel deal. you on how to flunk retirement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had this deal when I was a kid. We were, what we know is ranches. That's what we do. When we'd vacation, we'd go to somebody's ranch, stop by. And, and there was always a chore boy. And somebody said one day, they said, well, what do you want to be? And I said, the chore boy. I said, do you know what a chore boy is on a ranch? It was usually an older fellow, much older. Might probably had gray hair. And there'd been an injury or an illness that didn't allow him to do the heavy work anymore. So he ended up with the chore boy deal. And he'd do the light chores, maybe feed some lappy calves and run for parts and, you know, put up some boards and whatnot. Mostly, it was mostly a male-dominated deal at that time. Luckily, that's changed. That's how I see myself. You know, I can get the weed whacker, I can run the weed whacker, I can fix water trough. A lot of this heavy lifting is being done by Molly and Clifton. And if it comes to a computer deal, leave me out of it. <laughs> um, Let me ask the question I've been dreading asking, but I have to ask once. Uh, where does the state get in your business that it drives you completely crazy? What bugs you? Because inevitably I voted for one of these bills, but I still want to. <laughs> <laughs> I still want to know what they are. The the recent deal for me is the stock pond registration deal. We've tried to do the right thing. We had some unregistered stock ponds and there was kind of this push to get everything registered and get the reporting right. I submitted an application over two years ago to the water board to do that. I think they cashed our check before the ink dried, um, but they haven't been able to even review the application. Um, but they want me to report on the stock ponds and have since made me file 16 different applications to do that um, so that I can report on them, so that I can meet the requirements. Oh, I worked with Clint Eastwood on that water rights thing over at the ranch by the mouth of the Carmel River, and it took four years. And once a year, make me really nervous, once a year he would call and say, I need to meet with you. And he would sit across from me and say, I'm not getting any younger. And I really pushed even though there wasn't a way to push because you really couldn't put your fingers on the process and they gave them the water rights after four years we had a big ceremony and, and the water board said to me you know that's one of the fastest ones we've ever done and it was sort of like well what's slow <laughs> yeah, you, you know but they were very deliberative on some of that stuff Shortly after our visit to Dorrance Ranch, Leslie Dorrance passed away. In our short time there, it was obvious she possessed a lot of gravity at the ranch. Our thoughts go out to our family and friends. In lieu of flowers, you can make donations to Women in Ranching, which could be found at www.westernlandowners.org, which is a program that Leslie participated and enjoyed. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. Thank you for listening. <laughs>